Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. People have actually registered these domain names, things like brutal rape, cruel rape, real rape, just just awful. And then I think when we actually did the research, we found that it was about 80% of the videos were specifically about young girls, you know, young schoolgirl abducted and raped, hear her screams. It was very explicit. And for someone that works, I mean, my primary job is, is providing frontline support for women and girls who have been raped or abused in childhood. To see material like this that was essentially eroticising what had happened to them, not just excusing, not just normalising, but actually, you know, when we think about the purpose of pornography is for masturbation, that it's been created in order to sexually excite people. We're not talking about obscure sites. This isn't a niche porn interest that you have to go hunting for. In 2013, on the main porn hub sites, you would get a drop-down box, the same as you do on a supermarket site or any other shopping site. You get the drop-down box from the homepage, which gives you the varieties or the genres that you can um, have a search for. And rape pornography, with a couple of euphemisms, sometimes would commonly appear there. This podcast is about how a group of women, campaigners and academics worked together and achieved a change in the law, making pornography depicting rape illegal. It's introduced by author and former barrister Elizabeth Woodcraft. Today I'm talking to Fiona Vera Gray from Rape Crisis South London, Sarah Green from the End Violence Against Women campaign and Erica Rackley from the University of Birmingham. The legislation which covered pornography was the Obscene Publications Act of 1959. And although uh, there were feminist campaigns in the 70s and 80s around pornography, nothing changed until the 21st century when the Labour government decided that they wanted to do something. Erica, what was it that brought about the need for change or the desire for change by the government? I think there were a number of things that that happened that that meant that the the government felt that they needed to do something about this. Partly it was a change in the the amount and the way people were accessing pornography. There was a move from the increasing use of the internet to look at at images of of pornography. And so there was a recognition that the measures that the Obscene Publications Act was was using, which was to target the people who were producing and distributing the images, was was increasingly difficult to do because they weren't being based in, in the jurisdiction. That then coincided with a the murder of a young woman called Jane Longhurst, and this what this led to a campaign by her family around sexualized images of violence against women on on the internet. There was um, evidence to suggest that the person who was later convicted of her her murder had looked at these images in the lead up to um, her her being killed, and so her sister started a campaign supported by her MP to do something about about these images and about the people who actually looked at, at these images and so these two things came together, and the government then started to uh, in two thousand and five uh, issued a consultation where what they wanted to do was to tackle this, the sexualized violence images, but to tackle it by looking at people who were possessing these images. So to, to, to extend the law so that the, the people who were, who were looking at the images were, were sort of, in, in, in the government's language at the time, taking responsibility for the fact that they were creating the demand for that image. So these things sort of came together and that led to the government consultation. 
And were you part of that consultation? Well, I responded to the consultation with um, Professor Claire McGlynn at Durham University, where I worked at the time. There were a number of a number of people consulted, and the, and the people who responded to the consultation were were from a wide spectrum. So it included women's groups and women's organisations who were making arguments around not just violent pornography, but but all pornography, extending through to religious organisations and and a number of police forces responded, through to civil liberty campaigners and and civil rights and cyber rights organisations. And all these organisations came together and responded because what the consultation was asking was about the criminalisation of the possession of what it termed extreme pornography. And this was the first time that the language of extreme pornography had been used. And the definition, it went through various definitions during the consultation process up until when the legislation was enacted in 2008. So, but at its root was, was talking about, about violence. Where we ended up was with images involving necrophilia, bestiality, life-threatening injury and serious injury to anus, breasts and genitals. However, at the time in 2005, one of the categories was serious sexual violence. Now, that category was problematic because it led some people to say, well, when is sexual violence not serious? So how are we defining serious sexual violence here? And what are we really, what are we really getting, getting at? And so what happened was that category dropped out of the, the conversation and it wasn't included in the final final legislation it became too difficult almost to be able to to be able to define so the government stuck with what they saw as the sort of the clearer categories there was then legislation enacted uh, in 2008 and you wrote an article with Claire McGlynn where you say the extreme porn laws are a flawed piece of legislation which not only miss their true target but catch material that many would consider unproblematic in its crossfire. Mm. Yes, what Claire and I argued was that as a result of the sort of the, the way in which the government had been pulled that we'd ended up with, with a law that was, was both too narrow and too wide because it excluded images of rape but included consensual sexual images. And, and this seemed to be a, a mismatch. It, it opened the law up to legitimate criticism. So, here is this piece of legislation which almost everybody's unhappy with, yes? Though we were glad it was there, but it just wasn't as good as it could be. Then things happened in Scotland in 2010... <laughs> That was really exciting. So what happened was the original consultation back in 2005-2006 was a joint consultation between the UK government and the Scottish executive. Then England and Wales went off and, and enacted the, uh, the laws here. And Scotland waited and watched and saw what had happened in England and Wales. And then after the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act was enacted, Scotland then started consulting on their laws. The, the, the feminist and women's groups almost stole the march. They, they had the, the media interest in the issue from the start. They were able to more, more effectively frame and give the information to the media so that the reasons for the law were, um, were made, the arguments were made um, slightly, in slightly different terms. And what this meant was that they were, because we had the law in, in England and Wales that had excluded pornographic images of rape, there was a, from the from the get go, there was an argument for well we want this law but we also want images of, of rape 
Um, the Scottish Justice Committee were much more open to the cultural harm argument. They were much more open to the fact that there's a, a problem with these images um, existing in terms of the normalisation of sexual sexual violence and that this is this is problematic. And so it meant that when the law was enacted in Scotland, it included images of rape. And that was that was great. That was that was really good. It felt that a that the missed opportunity that had happened in England and Wales had had happened, you know, had been addressed in in Scotland, and it also enabled us to then sort of when we were talking about reforming the England and Wales laws to point to Scotland. So the Scottish campaign was in in and of itself was really exciting and a really good example of um, women's organisations being being motivated and committed and organised and vocal, and and really getting things, something happening. It was Sandy Brindley who was, who was leading it out there. It was awesome. Fiona, Rape Crisis were doing some research, is that right? Yeah, I mean, how we came to it was our helpline coordinator was told that this kind of pornography existed. I guess we had really no idea um, that it would exist, that it would be so explicit and that it wouldn't be trying to hide at all what it was. And so she, we share an office and she came up from the helpline and was talking to me and was like, oh God, you know, did you know that this stuff existed? I was like, oh no, I don't, let's have a look for it. Um, and so we just typed rape porn into Google and was absolutely just astounded at what came up. Again, it, it wasn't trying to pretend that it was anything other than it was. There were sites where the web addresses, so with, with, with companies, the, the domain names were things like brutal rape, cruel rape, real rape, just, just awful. And then you know, we started to kind of look at some of the descriptions on the videos and it was things very much, I think when we actually did the research, we found that it was about 80%, 78%, I think, of the videos were specifically about young girls. But it was one of the things that really hit us at that beginning point was there were descriptions of the videos, things like, um, you know, young schoolgirl abducted and raped, hear her screams. It was very explicit. And for someone that works, I mean, my primary job is, is providing frontline support for women and girls who have been raped or abused in childhood. To see material like this that was essentially um, eroticising what had happened to them, not just excusing, not just normalising, but actually, you know, when we think about the purpose of pornography is for masturbation, that it's been created in order to sexually excite people, you know, that was such a... It was just so disrespectful. It was just so disrespectful for hundreds of thousands of women and girls in this country that have experienced any form of sexual violence. So we thought there was something that we needed to do about it. And so the first thing that we did at this point, it wasn't organised or anything, was we thought, we'll just contact these hosting companies and tell them to take it down and just say, do you know what you're actually you know, hosting here? Can you take that down? And we had a, a level of success with that because a lot of the hosting companies actually in their terms and conditions say that they won't host pornography and they definitely won't host pornography uh, depicting criminal acts. Um, but so how, think, how come they don't know then? What are they saying? I have no idea. I think it's just that they, um, you know, they get, must get so many requests for domain names and so maybe a big corporation that doesn't pay any attention. I don't know. But when we, what we started to do was just go through their terms and conditions, copy and paste the part that says that they're not allowed it, send it to them with a copy of the web address and say, can you take this down? And so that started to happen. They started to take them down. But then there was one hosting company hosted in, um, uh, based in Amsterdam called LeaseWeb. And they started coming up again and again and again and again and, and they were refusing to take anything down and so we thought, okay, they're very problematic. So we contacted the Internet Watch Foundation, all of this time very naively thinking, this has to be against the law. This, 
So when is this? When are we talking about? Um, it's probably about this? 2011. Just thinking this this has to be against the law. We just have to find out how. Yeah, just have to find out who who we tell to take this down because this, this is just wrong. So contacted the Internet Watch Foundation, who do amazing work around um, images of child sexual abuse online and um, criminal forms of pornography as well. I think that used to be their email. I don't know if it is now. Contacted them and got a call back from them saying, actually, if it isn't, this actually isn't illegal. Um, and that's when we found out about the, the previous extreme pornography legislation. And so I think because, it, re- it really is because of the work that we do, we were unable to take that as being dead end. It was just like, actually, no, that can't be, that can't be a dead end. So we had an uh, intern at the time, an amazing young woman called Annie, and so we tasked her with the very, very difficult job of can you do a content analysis of these sites and we're going to create some kind of briefing paper. So she did it uh, alongside a, a couple of other women that we had as well that were like, yep, okay, we're going to do it. So they came in and did a really brief kind of dirty piece of research, not 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 funded or anything like that, um, just of the top 50 results. So first it was the top 10 results in Google when you type in free porn because we wanted to show that this wasn't actually a tiny little dirty corner of the internet. This was very freely accessible, um, particularly, you know, that this was what was being accessed by young boys. When you think about what young boys are typing into Google, it's free porn. And it came up that the top of the top 10 search results, five of them led to sites that host rape pornography. So we thought, right, okay, so this is, this isn't, the fact that I didn't know about it doesn't mean that actually, um, you know, a, a lot of people must know about this. Then we did a brief content analysis of the 50 um, sites that came up when you typed in free rape porn. That's when we started to find that I think it was 78% hosted content that was explicitly about under 18 um, rape. 100%, this is very interesting, I think, important, 100% of the videos were of women and girls being raped. So as part of the campaign, when, when we talk a bit later, that, that was one of the things that came up. You know, why is this about women and girls? What about rape pornography hosting men? Um, which I'm sure it exists. It wasn't in the top 50 um, results. So this was the explicit eroticisation of sexual violence perpetrated against women and girls. Lots of additional physical violence, lots of things around the girls um, and, and the women being restrained, visibly saying no. You know, So it was very much about um, trying to, I feel, engender in men and boys a sexual um, reaction to women not being consenting to sex, which is really dangerous. What we want is obviously a generation of men and boys who are going to grow up and who at the first point that someone is not interested in having sex with them is going to completely then become sexually not interested themselves. Um, but what this what this material was doing was actually having that be the point that then they're becoming more excited. So we created a briefing document with um, the brief content analysis and we did a very brief literature review and that's how we found out about the work of Erica and Claire because their work was the the most clear on the same page as us um, understanding of the law which we didn't at all and so we created a a briefing paper um, and kind of disseminated it a little bit mostly through the Environment Against Women Coalition and Holly Dustin um, who was there who started, she started sharing it at meetings with um, MPs, with policymakers, with decision makers. And we just, we didn't really think that much would come of it. We, we just kind of went, okay, we've done that. Let's see if anything, if, if anything happens. And then we got a call from the Ministry of Justice saying that they had somehow stumbled across the briefing paper, um, which I think is from Holly, and that they wanted to have a meeting with us. 
And so I immediately thought, oh no, I need to contact the law professors at Durham who I'd had a little bit of conversation with before when we'd looked at your articles to say, can you please come to this meeting because as invested as I am in it, as passionate as I am in it, I have absolutely no idea of the law. So I needed um, help from from the law professors and help from uh, Evor in terms of your campaigning work. So Sarah, let me turn to you. You're from the End Violence Against Women campaign. Can you talk a little bit about what the organisation does and how you got involved? Yeah, so our um, large coalition of women's organisations, UK-based women's organisations, about 60 organisations, includes so Rape Crisis in South London, where Fiona works, um, the purpose of our coalition is to to campaign for really for every level of government to take a more strategic approach, a more joined up approach, address all the different forms of abuse of women and girls. So not only domestic violence, where historically a lot of the public policy focus has been, but then so therefore to look at sexual violence as well as forced marriage and FGM and stalking. And as it happens now, all these different emerging forms of online abuse, for example. It's really interesting, in the past couple of years, we've only had serious public policy attention to child sexual exploitation, which largely concerns girls, but that's also is absent from the radar. So our organisations exist to persuade government to deal with all the different forms and critically to not to just deal with them in the criminal justice system after the fact, as it were. So in terms of supporting victims and ensuring there's justice, of course there is loads of work still to be done there. But our coalition of organisations, who the majority of whom are support services like Fiona's, want to see government... Um, take a more preventative approach, a more long-term approach, and that means getting better responses into the health system, for example, and then also, critically, we need to have relationships education in schools so that we're aiming to prevent. That's our whole purpose. As part of that, and when you try to you know, set out a campaigning agenda like that, you're inevitably talking about you know, civil society and public attitudes and the way that the excuses that are made for violence and why violence happens and why some people kind of are in some denial about it, why it's not taken seriously, why there's always kind of a minimising or a defence for um, perpetrators, why there's such scrutiny of women and girls when they've been abused for what they possibly could have done to make it happen rather than what should be the philosophically the more obvious question of why did someone do that to you? Why did a, usually a man or boy do that to you? So we find ourselves in, that, in this domain of asking the state to do proper due, due, due diligence but then doing some work on public attitudes and so on. That's our whole story. It means that when an issue like this emerges, our kind of... Um, analysis and understanding of uh, you know the existence of rape pornography the way that you know the, the factor here we've not discussed very much so far is appearance of um, like free standard household wi-fi around 2003-4 then the massive growth of um, just easily available stacks of online porn and you know who can see it um, so adults and children at any time of the day on any device and so on it's a recent technological development with very very large social and cultural consequences so the emergence of many many issues there but then um, a women's organization like rape crisis south london perceiving because of their very very practice-based work with women who've experienced abuse and who are saying i believe that my assault was also filmed i believe that the video is in circulation or um, like other member services of ours have said 
women who've been in domestic violence relationships who've said that as well as being stalked and, and uh, my ex-partner showing up at work, as well as being physically assaulted and you know being at the GP and at A&E who just took it for an injury, my partner also frequently used pornography and told me that if I didn't do what was in there then that he would leave me, hurt me, hurt the children and so on. So that's our, our knowledge which comes from our services about pornography being involved in abuse of women on, on that very long, large continuum. This experience means that it seemed to us, as a campaigning organisation, this is something very, very salient right now. This is something that should have public policy attention and it's um, probably something we can raise with civil servants and with politicians to say there is action you can take on this. This is actually something that you can call a loophole because the situation in Scotland is different and that you could take take action to, to address it. And I think the timing of, of the campaigning work we all did together is very important. Throughout 2012-13, there was a lot of attention to the um, appearance of, quantity of, possible social consequences of large amounts of online pornography, including child abuse imagery, which is where a lot of the media and political attention was, for example. So there was a lot of attention to this, which meant there was a space for saying we want questions answered about why the the legal situation is as it currently is when we know from actual practice, like from the practice and work of our services, that there is that this material causes harm. And that isn't to say, you know, a women's rights campaigners are often misrepresented as saying it as a simple sum. Um, pornography causes rape. We've never said that and we don't maintain that. We have talked about how the facts of material like this, um, our knowledge about the way that some abusive men have used it when they are committing abuse, the factors um, Fiona has really clearly described about the way that this material at the very least eroticises what has been serious assault for many women and girls and some boys and men is very, very important. So we wanted to get kind of public attention to it and a public conversation about it and a political response. And that's when we started together to go about the actually regular campaigning methods of letters, meetings, correspondence, petitions, newspapers and so on. So Rape Crisis got in touch with Erica and Claire. They'd already been in touch with Ivor. Mm -hmm. So there was a meeting that you all went to at the MOJ... Ministry of Justice, November 2012, to discuss a possibility of amending the law as it applied in England and Wales. Mm -hmm. That's right, yes? So was that the first time you'd all met? Um, It was the first time, I think, that we'd met the law professors. Yes, I think it was, actually. Yes, so so Holly Holly Justin was there as well. So you walk into the room... Well, I think what? we met beforehand. So did you sensibly? So we met beforehand. We had a cup of coffee. We'd been corresponding by email, and yes, because I remember we had a cup of coffee in the I coffee shop well, yeah. in the underground, underground yeah. and and we met and and sort of went in. And, and to be honest, it was the first time I'd ever been to that type of type of meeting, and, and we weren't really sure what to expect. We weren't we weren't weren't sure whether they were open to it or, or not open to it and we were we were going in. Claire and I had we produced a document that sort of set out mm-hmm. sort of this is what the law in Scotland says and this is this is what our law uh, what the law in England and Wales says and, and you know and pointing out the similarities and, and differences between between the two and then we sort of went in and, and just talked through what we thought should happen. Mm. Who was at the meeting? civil servant from um, the Ministry of Justice, the the main person from the Ministry of Justice, the civil servant that we had been corresponding with, wasn't able to be there. 
um, because he was ill. And so what the meeting was, from my memory, a little bit was us explaining what the law is, as it currently is, and the changes that we wanted to make. So as much as before going into it, we're thinking, we didn't know what the meeting would be, we thought maybe it would be productive, maybe something could happen. From memory, when we came out, kind of nothing had really happened. Why had they called it? Because... Is it that Ebor had really been kind of hammering away, look, writing letters and stuff? What did... My colleague, Holly Dustin, at the Environment Against Women Coalition, I think she'd circulated it to key civil mm-hmm. servants who we'd be in touch with, key civil servants and um, kind of ministers, well, who we would be commonly petitioning to you know, look at policy in this area to consider this or that change. What's important about this as um, a change is what some campaigners look for. It's a very specific ask with very specific evidence behind it. Quite straightforward. What you're asking for is quite simple, it's clear, it's... In contrast to like the work that we're doing all the time, which is for you know whole um, areas of government to take a full-spectrum approach to violence against women and girls. So it's not about, I'm kind of emphasising that unlike, um, say, machine campaign organisations, we're not picking off um, easier subjects. We're trying to do, you know, to do everything that tells the whole story, and that's really important. So I think, yeah, that my colleague Holly had um, circulated it and got it under the nose of um, kind of important civil servants and politicians, so decision makers, and that it must have got their attention enough to think, well, we need to talk to these people a bit more and find out a bit more. I wasn't involved at that point. It's kind of disappointing to hear if that if that meeting wasn't productive so you- straight off, because that is my memory, is that we there was a point when we decided we'll need to do public campaigning on this. Because, you know, women as women's organisations, we were reluctant to campaign publicly on this, because in publicising the very fact of this stuff, you, you might drive people to search for it, and we'd rather it had been done in a quieter way. It's a really good point. It was very strategic that we decided we, we were trying very much to get it through government without taking it public, because we didn't want to draw more attention to uh, the material. I mean, a, a little bit for for men and boys, but thinking if they were using pornography anyway because it was so freely available, they would have seen this material. It was more so because of the um, immense disrespect that this material does for survivors of sexual violence. I think uh, we all kind of decided that we didn't want it out there. So, you know, women don't need to know about this stuff unless, unless they have to. So what we do know, though, is that in May, the following May, so your meeting's November 2012, May 2013... The Ministry of Justice state it doesn't feel it appropriate or necessary <laughs> to extend the law to cover pornographic images of rape. And then I think after this announcement, Rape Crisis South London and and Violence Against Women Coalition gets into overdrive and yeah. starts <laughs> a big campaign. So what happened then? I think that there is something really unique and important about this campaign in terms of the women that we got together around the table and how all of us brought something that, that meant the, the campaign mobilised in such a successful way. Claire and Erica had arranged in May to do a conference at the university on the extreme pornography, pornography legislation. I think, again, just to keep the pressure up, because we well, have it was heard. five years. It was the five-year five five anniversary. So, Claire five and I... Five years of... Five years of the enactment of the original extreme porn laws to rape pornography, and we wanted to get people people together. But I think Fiona's absolutely right. We, we brought together the different ex- expertise, and I think Claire and I were kind of conscious that we needed to make the kind of the academic mm-hmm. argument for them. Mm-hmm. So, we, so, so Durham University... We were able to kind of create a space 
to bring to bring us together to have that conversation, both the broader conversation, but also a smaller conversation between the four of us. Mm-hmm. But I think that that conference, um, we'd invited the, the civil servant at the, the Ministry of Justice that we were talking to, and I think the fact that he knew that conference was happening meant that he had to publish a response. So we'd heard nothing from the meeting from November. I think they were hoping to just leave it. And then all of a sudden, I think it was the day of or the day before the conference, we got a six-page letter basically saying, no, you're wrong, there's there's no problem here, we've looked into it, there's no way it can be changed, there's no problem. So, yeah, it, it was great timing because we had the conference already, we were all up in um, Durham, Holly and myself had gone up to present, and so we all met together, um, together with uh, Nicole Westmarland was there, who's another academic um, who works specifically around sexual violence at Durham, um, and we all got together and thought, okay, right, let's let's take this public. I have a list here of, of what actually uh, happened as part of this ongoing campaign that, that Claire McLean went on to Woman's Hour and Law in Action and spoke mm-hmm. about it. There was a, a change.org petition, 72,000 signatories mm-hmm. in a month. Three MPs raised issues in opposition day debates in Parliament. There was an open letter to the Prime Minister which was signed by over 100 women's groups and 260 plus media discussions with front page articles mm-hmm. in the Daily Telegraph and and also international media, France, New Zealand, India. Whoa, you were busy. So what was going on? There was a kind of a... I think after our, you know, probably some frustration and some fury at this um, response eventually from, you know, lo- lengthy correspondence from the MOJ um, saying that your concerns are incorrect. They're not, because the, the letter Fiona referred to, it also it went into some really odd detail saying, well, we've had a look at the stuff and we're, not, we're just not quite sure that some of it's not staged. Yeah. And it's got really good production values, which implies it's a reasonable commercial product and so on. It was, some of it was nonsense it didn't answer our questions properly and it certainly didn't ask the question answer the questions about harm so we thought this is it's really inadequate because you've not even understood properly what we've evidenced and put before you so it is time to have more public attention to it and that's when together we organized conventional campaigning um, methods which are about bringing the public into it and okay if you if you don't want to listen to us this way let's see what parts of the public think and and why this matters right now so the petition was organized and at that point it's important to remember in 2013 72,000 was a really big mm. petition it was pre Jeremy Clarkson days and uh, that was huge and and grew quickly and was notable as was the letter which more than 100 individuals and organisations signed but including really prominent opinion forming um, mainstream organisations and people so like Mumsnet and like the No More Page 3 campaign which was really clear and popular at, at that time um, has now since been victorious hurrah and uh, many others so that and that kind of letter got the attention of um, I think it was front paged uh, and so on on the Telegraph and there was a lot of other media attention and media discussions this was all happening, you know, timing is so important in a lot of campaigning. It was happening in the middle of um, the summer 2013, so really within kind of an eight-week period when the Prime Minister was already under a lot of pressure about a distinct issue, but in particular about child abuse imagery and how easily available this was, which was being disputed by different organisations. 
the Prime Minister had decided to host um, an internet summit at Downing Street um, in the middle of June, and we'd launched our like huge petition and um, attention to our campaign with um, different newspapers kind of a week before that. So it became, you know, we are, we've never um, kind of... Um, uh, portrayed what we're doing or communicated it as something different. We were really, really clear that this is also quite singular. So pornographic depictions of sexual violence is what we're talking about and we believe them to be problematic. They do harm and they should be criminalised as they are elsewhere. So it became then part of the debate during that summer and when the Prime Minister again hosted kind of a second event or did some public speaking I think he gave a big speech at one of the children's charities even still just a couple of weeks later um, he made multiple pledges in this area about what he was going to do so he was for example talking about the voluntary work some of the internet service providers had agreed to do in creating there's a huge debate if you remember about the difference between opt-ins and opt-outs so eventually some of the ISPs and so on had agreed that okay we'll some will shift to an opt-in rather than opt-out model for so for availability of pornography in the home for example and then this commitment to criminalize rape pornography was among the um, commitments that he made that summer so it was actually in terms of a change in the law and the discussion of a subject it was moved and won quite quickly and quite swiftly so you've had may may 2013 you get this letter saying it's not appropriate or necessary and then in July of 2013, he's he's announcing it's there's going yeah. to be criminal legislation yeah. changes. And there's really it's really important, I think, to to reflect on that and what that means, and that because that speed is significant. But that's part of that's a lot of how politics in a democracy is done. The issues were aired. It was clear that there was huge public concern. You don't get something onto the front page of a newspaper by accident or because, uh, well, certainly not at our level, because you're mates with people, and certainly not on the titles who took an interest. It's because they reflect enormous public concern. So again, as uh, my colleague Fiona has said, a lot of say service providers would um, previously have been unaware of this material, and um, because it's not our interest in the context of this enormous change and the enormous volume of different kinds of porn that are available easily online in much less than a decade. It's a very, very significant technological, social, cultural change going on there. But in airing this particular issue, we've found and shown quickly that there's enormous public interest and public concern, and that actually when a lot of people, like Mumsnet users, for example, do discover or are shown that this is as easily available in a um, mainstream porn hub site from its main drop-down box, where you can find quickly, again to emphasise what Fiona said, we're not talking about obscure sites, this isn't a niche porn interest that you have to go hunting for. In 2013, because I did the searches before I did media interviews to make sure I was being correct when I said it's one or two clicks away, on the main porn hub sites, you would get a drop-down box, the same as you do on a supermarket site or any other shopping site. You get the drop-down box from the home page, which gives you the varieties or the genres that you can um, have a search for. And rape pornography, with a couple of euphemisms, sometimes would commonly appear there, as would other stuff, actually, that remains, like ebony porn, which is pornography um, depicting black women in an extremely degrading way, or like daddy porn, which is porn depicting incest, which is still extremely problematic, certainly needs public policy discussion as well. So that availability of it in a clear and open marketplace, when exposed, engendered public concern, which a which politicians could see they needed to respond to. So in the same way that they were responding to public concern about opt-in rather than opt-out arrangement and the impact that has on um, 
users, consumers, families, in the same way that they were were responding also to cases that had been in the news um, around that summer, around very, very concerning violent crimes. The politicians need to show that they are attentive and that they are listening to issues of massive public concern. There's been a huge issue around um, a lot of online online abuse and then which gets you know is still being typified almost week by week in terms of the different kinds of abuse there's a lot for policymakers to catch up with um, in terms of the, just the speed of a lot of these developments and it's important to be seen to be doing that my last point here would be although we can reflect on now the speed of this initial commitment in July 2013 we then we were then involved in another 18 months of defending that commitment and ensuring that it happened because of course there was a natural and proper response in a democracy by those who have a different view a more libertarian view perhaps so-called and who wanted to oppose it so there was still a lot of work to do and a lot of um, debate and argument and meeting with uh, decision makers and so on to repeat and repeat and repeat the arguments and the evidence about why this matters and why this change should happen and that's that, that stage of the campaigning process is not to be taken for granted either. You don't just kind of go home when the Prime Minister's given a speech saying, I'll do this. And I think we, we were even more aware of that because of what had happened previously yeah. in, 2000 and, uh, mm. in the 2008 law, because we then it looked like something was going to happen and then the, it didn't. And so I think certainly we were, we were aware that, yeah, just, just because Cameron had said something didn't mean that it, were, it was going to happen and, and that we were even... Even once it had gone, you know, it had been discussed in the House of Lords and then gone to the Commons and at the ping pong stage, it was because it was again, it was placed within a rather controversial bill. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't simply um, simply about about pornography. It was a, a much broader bill that had some incredibly um, contentious issues in there, and so there was a, a sort of double whammy of uh, we need to make the arguments for why these provisions need to stay in there, but then there was also a significant risk that the whole bill. Um, may, may well not, not happen and it would be, then the provisions would be a, a sort of casualty of, of, of that bill. So I think Sarah's absolutely right that it's sort of, it was relief and excitement followed by right. <laughs> now, <that laughs> now, now how are we going to get this yeah. to, to happen? And I think also it looks on the surface as though it was quite quick because we kind of raised up from where we were to go front-facing for that short period but not at all to undermine the work that had gone in you know, for years and years before, because it did really start with the work that you were doing around the very initial provisions. So it it, it looked maybe on the surface as though it was a very quick, short, two-month win campaign, but actually it had, you know, years and years, three, four, five years behind it. But that said, Fiona, when we... I remember when we, we sort of it first kicked off and, and going to my phone as I woke up in the morning and, and it just being in almost Everywhere. every paper... Was was just incredible, and that was you, Sarah. You, <laughs> yeah. you did that, and I remember sort of thinking, you know, this must be what it's like when you're famous and a story comes out about you, and you can't <laughs> sort of stop it, and and just looking and 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 being emailing Claire and sort of saying it's everywhere because it just felt like it had gone, and and even though we knew it was it was happening, I don't, I think even at that stage, I wasn't quite sure what that meant so we were you know we were being told it's going to be here it's going to be there and we'd done a press release and all this sort of stuff but then that was really it was quite it felt very real mm-hmm. then and, and, yeah. and it was really wonderful it, was, it felt like we were, we'd come together and it, it happened mm-hmm. so so yes I think we 
we kind of it was a, it was a long and a short process. Both of them. Yeah. So when you say you woke up and it was everywhere, is that that's in two thousand and thirteen? Is that what you mean? Yes. So once that once summer. once that, that summer, summer, yes, there was a particular day. I can't remember what the day it was, but what, it was kind of there were two or three big media days. So there was when we launched the um, letter. The letter. So we, yeah, we, the, the letter to Cameron, which was signed by a hundred or so organisations, we made an open letter and published and gave it exclusively, I think, to one of the papers. Um, and then the petition also garnered attention. And then when Cameron did his ran the internet summit at Downing Street, we knew that was coming, so we press released repeating the concerns on that day and it kind of, you know, it made it into the, you know, the wire copy and lots of, and most newspapers copy because it went into the kind of the preparation of those stories. So there's a there's a process to that, and it is helpful to know, um, in some ways, how to, you know, be, be part of that. Um, but I do still. It is also part of this is how, you know, um, matters of a really really important public concern mm-hmm. get aired and then get response, and then we you know we find the way on them. There is a, a small reflection of mine in a way is that, um, you know, having worked on different campaigning issues for a few years, a lot around women's rights. It's because uh, I think I think this is a really good example of really good collaborative campaigning with really different bringing different expertise together. I must say, on absolutely no resource. So unlike you know great big corporate machines that throw loads of money at all the you know all this massive division of labour within different kinds of PR and whatever, there's no resource here. But it's about the proper airing of a, a public concern. In my experience across different areas of women's rights. When you're doing kind of media-based uh, public campaigning, it is much easier to get attention for, or you will find you will get attention on any on issues around sex and sexuality, pornography, and because the other issue that comes to mind is trafficking receives a lot more, as it were, kind of media attention, discussion, and um, and often quite inadequate debate as to the you know the right policy solutions because it's got a the fact is it's got a titillating element to it, and. I think we absolutely have to say that that exists in discussions about pornography as well. So there is an interest for some media outlets in giving attention to this when they won't give it to something that um, you know is equally urgent in public policy terms but doesn't have that sexual element that they know is both entertaining as well as informing to readers. Thank you. So the law was given the royal assent on the 12th of February of this year and it is now Section 37 of the Criminal Justice and Courts Act. We now need to actually look at how it is implemented in terms of does it start, does this now, does this new change capture actually what we wanted it to? This is a, this isn't an argument that, that's often made around feminist campaigns for law reform, that, that getting the law is, is another sort of first step or second yeah, step or, yeah. or whatever, whatever number step we're, we're at, and that <laughs> simply because it's, we now have a law to do this, that that doesn't mean that we can sort of put it to one side and, and move on. And what is important is that we look to make sure that prosecutions are being brought um, using using this law and that that's in and trying to to track and, and to reflect on how how it's being used and whether it's having a, a an impact on the the availability of this material. So I think yes, I think that's one of the things. So a bit like when we had our meeting, sort of. You know, so being able to look back, you know, five years, so five years into the future, to then look back and make sure that this is this is this is being being used. I think. Yeah, I think one of the concerns that did come up once we took it um, front facing was there was um, concern around, you know, this is censoring sexual freedom, sexual liberties. Um, there was a, a bit of noise made from the um, 
BDSM lobbying, which is bondage, domination, sadomasochism mm. lobby, um, which was saying this is going to capture our material, which, you know, we were very mindful that that is what, how the previous law had been used. So I think it is really important for us to continue to see that this, you know, that it's not capturing material where consent is being um, shown, at least not under, under this provision, um, but it really is there to capture the material that is around the explicit eroticisation of non-consent. And I think, because well, I think actually this is part of a, a a small part of a broader discussion that needs to be had about how we regulate pornography mm. in England and Wales and the UK mm. more generally. I think it's been um, many years since the the Williams Commission, Committee when when we we started talking about um, how regu- legal regulation of pornography, and and I think that there's a strong argument for the need to move away from obscenity based provisions. Um, based grounded in, in obscenity and disgust and that we start to have significant and serious com- conversations about the harm of pornography across the whole mm-hmm. spectrum and how we use both law and other mechanisms in order to, to regulate it and the various players and dynamics within that mm-hmm. within, the, within the, the industry and the users and the distributors and the internet service providers and, yeah. and so on so I think that if there was something to come come out of this, it would be to um, to say that, that as, as Sarah's described, you know, this was a very specific issue where we could get a very specific result. But not only is it located within the broader context of violence against women and girls and and the issues relating to. Um, relating to that, it's also within a, a sort of, uh, it's like a Venn diagram. One of the circles of that Venn diagram is about the regulation of pornography, and I think it's time for policymakers to to have a have a serious discussion, um, which brings together all interest groups, mm-hmm. all people who are invested in this, that, that, and are a, we're able to to talk and understand and, and come to some kind of effect effective legal regulation.